Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn in it to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. If you did not bring a Bible, uh, it has been provided on the handout you were given. You can find the Gospel of Luke um, by looking at the table of contents that's in the front of your Bible. Luke is one of four biographies written about Jesus. And so it is a careful examination of the life of Christ. And so we've been calling this long series that we've been in, we are calling this Jesus Unfiltered. Because Luke is giving us a look at who Jesus is and what he was like to the people who really knew him. We're in Luke chapter 17 this morning, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Let's turn our attention to the reading of God's Word. And he said to his disciples, temptation to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry bush, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Have you ever been in a situation where you're like, wow, I'm kind of in way over my head. I think I just bit off more than I could chew. Early on when I first took a position uh, of being the chaplain for the Philadelphia Phillies, I was sitting in the dugout waiting to have a conversation with one of the players that I need to talk with. And he said, hey, Jeff, I'll, I'll talk to you in a second, but I have to play catch first. But I'm waiting for my teammate to come, and he's, he's running late. So, you know, why don't you and I just play catch, and I can get that done, and then we can go have our conversation. Now, I have never played baseball, not even, not even Little League. But I like to think of myself as somewhat athletic. I know how to pull in a glove and throw a ball. So I'm like, sure, I can go, I can go play catch, no problem. And so we, we head out of the dugout onto the field together, and that's when I watched what it meant for professional baseball players to play catch. The pitchers were out there, and their version of playing catch is they are trying to warm up their arms. This is not a casual tossing of the ball. This is hurling the ball at close to 90 miles per hour. And so as I'm watching this take place, I'm realizing that I am in way over my head. And I'm realizing there's only one of two outcomes here. Either one, I'm about to die. Like, this ball is going to hit me in the head, and this is how I go out. You know, I hope that these guys are ready to give an explanation to my wife and kids about how they killed me. So, like, I'm like, this, this is it. This is my moment. Or, base, best case scenario, I'm able to dodge it, and I'm going to look like a total loser to these guys and lose all credibility 
and my run as a chaplain is going to be over before it even started. I'm walking out there, and I'm just like, I'm, I'm in way over my head, but I'm committed at this point. What am I going to do? Well, praise God that he answers desperate prayers, and so right as I bend down to pick up the glove, this other teammate comes rushing out and says, no worry, no worries, I got it, I got it. I'm like, oh, good, I'll Go, go ahead. I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you get there. I got the next one. I got the next one. You, you take this one. I, I got the next one. We can all have those moments where we are in over our head. Jesus just had a conversation with his disciples. And he tells them three commands in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 17. He tells them three things that they are to do. And their response is to ask, Lord, increase our faith. Right? They, they hear what Jesus is telling them to do, and they realize they are in way over their heads. They, they take an internal inventory, and they realize they do not have the resources within themselves to meet these commands that Jesus just gave. They, they look at themselves and are like, we can't help us to believe that you can. And that's what faith is. Faith is not greater self-will. Faith is not a commitment to try harder. Faith is a desire to trust God more. Faith is believing not in what we have the ability to do. Faith is trusting God for what he says he can do. They see these commands and they ask for more faith. And Jesus affirms their desire by giving them an illustration of what faith can do. He says, okay, you want more faith, let me tell you a little something about faith. He says, if you have faith, you can say to a mulberry bush, be picked up and thrown into a sea. Now, Jesus is not encouraging that we go around praying for bizarre agricultural phenomenon to occur. It's not his point. He's giving an illustration. He's saying that if you speak to something and have it move, that, that's impossible, right? Like, we don't move things by talking to them. That's an impossible thing. And, and the illustration he's given here of moving a mulberry bush, that would be even more impossible because back in ancient Israelite times, mulberry bushes were known as having these extensive root systems. A mulberry bush was not a bush that you could uproot by hand. They didn't have backhoes back then. And so you couldn't just take a mulberry bush up. And so Jesus is illustrating an impossible situation. But that is what faith is. Faith is not looking at what is probable. Faith is believing that God can do what's impossible. Jesus is not telling them to do something bizarre. He's telling them to believe in what he can do through his power. And so sometimes when we hear this, we can apply this like, okay, I just got to, I don't know, work up my way to have more faith somehow. You know, we can just, I got to try harder to have some kind of more faith. You know, we, we try to work ourselves up in kind of faith convulsions. But notice what Jesus says about this faith. He, he tells them that faith can accomplish impossible things. But how much faith does he tell them they need to have in order to do that? How does Jesus describe the faith? that accomplishes the impossible. Well, he says right there in verse 4 that if you have faith the size, excuse me, verse five, 6, 
He says in verse 6, you have faith the size of a mustard seed. Now, I don't know anything about mustard seeds, but if you Google them, you can find out that mustard seeds are pretty small, about half the size of a kernel of corn. For these ancient Israelites, it would have been the smallest seed that they are aware of. And so notice what Jesus is doing here. These guys are saying, Lord, we need more faith. He is not saying, yes, you do need more faith. I'm going to give you a bigger faith. That's not what he says. He says, you don't need more faith. You just need a little faith. You just need a little faith. Because watch, it's not the size of our faith that makes a difference. It's the size of the God that we have faith in. Let me say it a different way. It's not the amount of our faith that gets stuff done. It's the object of our faith that gets stuff done. Let me try it one more way. A little faith in a big God can accomplish impossible things. It's not about us having more faith and trying to muster that up in ourselves. It's about us having a bigger view of who God is. It only takes a little faith in a big God to see the impossible come true. It's not the size of our faith that matters, but the size of the God that we have faith in. But the question that we should be asking ourselves at this point is what caused these disciples to have this response of praying for more faith? Why are they feeling that they're in over their heads? What are these commands that Jesus has given them in the first four verses where they think that their only response is that they need God to do something they can't do. Well, notice in verse 1, Jesus tells them something they are not to do to other people. And then verses 2 through 4, he tells them two things they are to do to other people. What is causing these guys to have a crisis of faith is they are hearing Jesus give commands about how they were to be in relationships with other people. Jesus is talking to them about how they are to relate to others. And relationships, God's way, relationships the way that God wants us to be in them, relationships the way that God wants us to pursue them, relationships, whether it be spouse or family or friend, relationships... God's way require faith. Relationships require faith. It can seem a little odd to be talking about relationships in the year 2020 when I think our relationships have never been more strained. We are living in a time of social isolation. But I would argue that it's actually never been more important that we talk about relationships than in the year 2020. Because as much as we might feel isolated from each other, and I hear all the time people saying that, oh, I feel so lonely. But then I don't see many people taking steps to address their loneliness. I'm very concerned that one of our biggest challenges in the next 6 to 18 months is that we've formed a lot of bad habits in the past 6 months. We've gotten used to not being in relationships. 
But God's been very clear. All the way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, God says it is not good for man to be alone. We are not designed to thrive in isolation. We are hardwired by God to be at our best when we are in close relationships with one another. Now we have to get a little more creative in these times. right? We have to maybe do relationships in a different way than we used to. But God wants us to be in relationships with one another. We do not do well. We cannot pursue God's best in our lives by ourselves. It is not good for us to be alone. We are made with a need for relationships. But relationships are going to require a lot of faith. If we want to experience what God wants for us through having transformative, spiritually formative relationships in our lives, then relationships require faith. We're going to see three ways that relationships require faith. Three ways relationships require faith. The first is this. It takes faith to care about others. It takes faith to care. It takes faith to care. Verse 1 says that temptation is going to be sure to come. Temptation is just a natural part of living life. Temptation to sin, which can come in one of two ways. We're either tempted to do things that God says we shouldn't, or what I think is more often the case, we're tempted not to do things that God says we should. So we're tempted to do something God says we shouldn't, for example, lie, or tempted not to do something that God says we should, for example, be generous. But either way, we're tempted to sin by either doing what we shouldn't do or by not doing what we should do. The temptations to sin are sure to come. And we're responsible for how we respond to those temptations. No one can make us sin. That's always our choice. But we're also responsible not only for how we respond to temptations, we're also responsible for how we tempt others. For how we tempt others. In verse 1, Jesus says, Woe to those through whom temptation comes. Woe is a Bible way of saying that God's judgment is going to be on you. It's a big deal for God to pronounce woe. God, Jesus wants to make sure how big a deal it is by giving an illustration. He says, it would be better for you to have a millstone, which would be a huge, heavy, several pound stone used for grinding wheat used in a mill. It would be better to have one of these stones hung around your neck and you'd be drowned than for you to tempt someone else. And the reason that Jesus is being so serious about our responsibility not to tempt others is because of how he describes who these people are. Notice he says, woe to those who put, in verse 2, temptation before what? Little ones. The little ones. Children. Now who are the children that Jesus is talking to? There are no children present at all mentioned when he's speaking. It actually says in verse 1 that he's talking to his disciples. Who are the little ones? The little ones are God's people. The little ones are God's followers. See, God sees us as his children. 
doesn't matter how old you are, to God, you are always precious. You are always one of His little ones. To be a follower of God is to be a child of God. But guess what? If you're a child of God, then God cares a lot about how people mess with His kids. God takes temptation so serious because He sees us as so precious. God wants us to be careful about how we are influencing others. That's what you're doing when you're tempting someone. You're not making a choice for them, but you are influencing them in a certain way. God wants us to care about how we influence others. Now here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. He says in verse 3 that we need to pay attention to this. That phrase there, pay attention, means pay attention. This is not obvious. You have to watch what's going on here. Carefully examine what's happening. Friends, the temptation, to tempt to, uh, the temptation that we have to put before others is usually not something big. It's usually not, hey, listen, let's go rob this bank together. The temptation that Jesus is talking about here is not an obvious temptation. It's the subtle ways that we can influence one another. It's the ways that we can go to a brother and sister and say, hey, listen, we really need to pray for so-and-so. And we start gossiping about another person under the guise of a prayer request. But really, we just want to dump on them. We just want to talk about them instead of talking through our problems with them. We're gossiping. Well, guess what? When you're gossiping, not only are you sinning, you're now tempting the person to sin. Because guess what? It is just as sinful to gossip as it is to listen to gossip. If you are sitting there listening to someone talk to you about someone else, and you're not throwing a flag, you're not saying, hey, time out. This has nothing to do with me. Go talk to them. If you're harboring gossip, then you are aiding and abetting sin. But this is how we contempt one another. We contempt one another through complaining. We're just complaining all the time. Talk about how hard our life is. And guess what? Talk about that enough, other people are going to feel like their life is really hard. And they're going to start feeling discontent and complaining as well. We contempt one another through flaunting our material possessions. And living ostentatiously in a way that tempts other people to be jealous and envious. We can tempt one another through our use of social media as we post a meme or a comment tearing down another political party, talking about how great our person is, poking a little fun at this, and now we're tempting other people to get angry and we're tempting division to occur. Friends, there are all kinds of ways that we need to pay attention. The temptation to tempt one another happens in very subtle, very subtle ways. Everyone is responsible for how they respond to temptations, but we are held responsible by God for the act of tempting. Jesus wants us to care about our influence, and friends, this takes faith. This takes faith, because guess what? We naturally don't give a rip. I'm going to post what I want on social media, and who cares who this offends? I'm going to say what I want to who I want and how I want it. I'm just venting. I'm speaking my truth. Right? We don't naturally give a rip about how we're influencing others because we're just caught up in ourselves. 
But Jesus wants us to have eyes of faith. He wants to see other people through his lens. He wants us to look to him with faith in who he is. And as we believe in who God is, guess what? That redefines how we see one another. We're not just other people. As we see God, we are now seeing God's children. And so if we're going to care about each other, then we need to have faith to see each other through God's eyes. It takes faith. It takes faith to care. It takes faith to care. Point number two. Relationship principle number two. It takes faith to restore. It takes faith to care. It takes faith to restore. In verse 3, Jesus says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. Not at you, but when I hear that word rebuke, that can sound like really harsh to me. Like, man, like rebuke, that seems like a really mean thing to do. But actually, this word rebuke, what it means in the original Greek language that this was written in, the word that rebuke there means to show proper honor. To show proper honor. It's not the idea of correcting someone because you're angry with them. It's the idea of correcting someone because you want to see them honored. You want to see something better for them. So it's my wife telling me as I'm about to walk out the door in a mismatched outfit, hey, sweetie, I don't think that looks good at all. She's correcting me, not because she's angry at me. She's correcting me because she doesn't want me to see me being made a fool of. Right? She wants to see me honored. She cares about me. Right? It's not tearing down. It's, it's building up. The goal of rebuke is not to tear someone down. The goal of rebuke is to see someone be restored. It's to build them back up stronger than they were before. Rebuking does not come from a punishing heart. Rebuking comes from a restorative, redemptive desire. I'm so grateful for people in my life who have a restorative, redemptive desire for me. We meet as a pastoral team every other week just to talk about things going on in the church, to make plans. And as we talk through these things, generally we like each other and things go well, but sometimes our differences of opinion can lead to heated conversations. A couple weeks ago, I was having a heated conversation where I was arguing my point, and it was one of those moments where I was winning the argument, but I was losing out on godliness. And one of my brothers pulled me aside and said, hey, Jeff, I appreciate what you're saying. I agree with what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense. But you are totally wrong in what you're doing right now. And their goal of correcting me in that moment was not to try to hurt me. Their goal of correcting me in that moment was to try to restore me. They cared about me. They wanted to see me actually honored. The way they said is like, listen, what you have to say is really good, but no one can hear what you're having to say because how you're doing is really bad. Right? They wanted me to be honored in what I was saying, and so they rebuked me so that I could be restored. This is the heart that God wants us to have for one another. But restoring someone, restoring someone takes, it takes faith. Because guess what? If you're going to step out and talk to someone like that, you're taking a risk, aren't you? You're taking a risk. It's easier. It's far easier just to let things lie. Just to go with the flow. To not want to upset the apple cart. 
if we're going to take the risk to be used by God in someone's life, to be a voice of God to them, we're going to need faith in God to do so. It takes faith to restore. How often we can, we can be like, okay, I see what's happening here, but if I say something, then this will happen, and then that will happen, and then this will And we go through this whole script in our head. And so we never take the first step because we think we've already seen the process all the way through. Well, let me just tell you something. We're not God. We don't know the future. And so if we are playing that script, saying, if I say this, then this will happen. Maybe, but we're also not giving space for God to move. We're saying that what we think it is going to happen is more true than what God says is possible could happen. We need to believe that God can work in someone's life. That's how we step out and allow ourselves to be used. It's not by doubting what God can do, but by believing that, listen, God might want to use me to be a redemptive tool in someone's life. Now, I want to be careful here. Because this is not a license to go around and just start correcting everyone. Right? If you get really excited, like, oh man, I've been waiting for this. I've got this problem with this person. I've got this problem with this person. I've got this. I mean, Pastor said I can correct. Let's get at it. All right, if that's you, you have a little bit of a problem. Okay? Um, rebuking should always be something we're feeling a little uncomfortable about. It shouldn't be something that we find easy to do. And notice what it says in verse 4. Excuse me, verse, verse 3. Notice what it says in verse 3. It says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. That word brother can mean either a close blood friend or a blood relative. Either way, Jesus is saying this rebuking is taking place in the context of a relationship. This isn't just going around bashing people and telling them what you think they're doing wrong. This isn't being a true speaker on social media. This is a close, close friend. Someone that you have built trust with over the years. Someone that you know they know that you're for them. This is someone that it is safe to bring that rebuke to. And so really this call to restore is a call to build close relationships. Here's a way to think about this, maybe from a different angle. Do you allow people into your life that are close enough to rebuke you? Do you have people in your life that know you well enough and that have your permission to be used as an instrument in God's hand to bring you correction? Or do you keep everyone at arm's length? Is there a wall that you hide behind? We'll go this far, but no further. Listen, friend, if you aren't being corrected by others, Right now, I just want to bring a little correction to you. We're all sinners. I need to be corrected, and guess what? You need to be corrected. And so if we're having close friends, one of the ways that God wants to use our friends in our lives is through this idea of restoring one another. And so maybe one of the things that you need to think about applying is how can I build closer relationships with other people so that I can position them to be used by God in my life? Before you think about how maybe God wants to use you, maybe think about this. How do people need to be used by God for me? When was the last time I was corrected? 
Who, who has permission to do that in my life? It takes faith to give and to receive rebukes. But friends, God has restorative promises in this for us. God wants us to have this faith in what he can do. He wants us to believe that he can use us as a redemptive tool in his hands for the good of others. It takes faith to restore. Relationship principle number three. It's probably the hardest one. It takes faith to forgive. It takes faith to forgive. Listen, relationships, relationships have transformative effect over time. Right? When I was just talking about building relationships there and letting people get close enough that you can kind of give and receive rebukes like that, that doesn't happen quickly. It takes a lot of time and intentionality to build up that kind of trust. The church that started this church that I was a part of for 20 years before I came over here, it's been around for over 25 years. Um, so I started from the beginning. I was, I was, I've been part of it for 20 years, but it's existed for close to 25. When I go back there, I see that, man, it, it's just so amazing to me the ways that they can just be used in each other's lives. And why is that? Because they've known each other for decades. They've been rooted in one place, building relationships with particular people. You just can't manufacture that. You can't. It takes time to build relationships, but guess what time requires? If you're going to take the time to build relationships, guess what that means? That means you're going to need to be, have to forgive one another. Because if you spend any amount of time in a relationship, you know what's going to happen? Someone's going to offend you at some point. Someone's going to hurt you at some point. Someone's going to let you down at some point. And so any relationship that's gone for any length of time is a relationship where forgiveness has taken place. If there's no forgiveness in relationships, then every relationship can only grow so much before it gets cut off. It takes faith to have relationships for a long time because it takes faith to be able to forgive one another. And, that's what need, and that is what is needed for relationships to last a long time. To forgive one another, that word literally means to cancel a debt. It is the determination that I'm not going to hold this thing against you, that I rightfully could, I'm going to choose not to hold it against you. This debt that you have against me, I'm going to choose to cancel it. I'm going to choose to forgive it. I think a lot of times people say it's so hard to forgive because I can't forget. And so it just keeps coming back again and again and again. Friends, I want to be very clear. Forgiving does not mean forgetting. You can't determine what you do and don't remember. Forgiving does not mean forgiving. Forgiving means choosing not to hold against that person what you are remembering. This, this is what forgiving is. It's watching a YouTube video... And all of a sudden, this ad pops up that you never expected, that you didn't think it would be there, and you decide to hit skip ad because I don't want to watch that. That's what forgiving is. It's, it's we're going through life just doing our thing, and this thing that's happened against us might pop up in our mind, might come up in our lives. It's choosing to hit skip ad. It's not forgetting it. It's choosing not to dwell on it. It's choosing not to dwell on it. But friends, this takes 
This takes a lot. This takes a lot of faith. Because Jesus says that this forgiveness needs to happen, he says, even if it happens seven times in one day. That number seven is not chosen arbitrarily. That's a symbolic number in the Jewish context. The number seven is the number for perfection, for completion, for totality. What Jesus is saying is that we need to forgive people all the time. No exceptions. That's what we're called to pursue in our relationships. Now, if we're looking at this, it says even if that person comes to you seven times one day. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone keeps coming to me saying, hey, I'm really sorry, I won't do that again. Hey, I'm really sorry, I won't do that again. Hey, I'm really sorry, I won't do that again. At some point, I'm going to be like, you know, I'm not going to forgive you because you really don't seem to care. But Jesus says we need to keep forgiving. Why? Because our forgiveness is not based upon the genuineness of someone else's repentance. It's not. We don't forgive people based upon how they treat us. We forgive people based upon how God has commanded us. God has commanded us to forgive. And friends, if that's not going to bring you to your needs and dependence on God, I don't know what it is. Because as I think about that command of Christ to forgive others, friends, it is commands like this that are meant to take us to Christ. When we see what Christ is telling us to do here, that should make us look to Christ for the power because only he can empower this in our lives. The faith to forgive comes from looking to Jesus Christ and with eyes of faith seeing how he has forgiven us. The commands of Christ are meant to take us to Christ Independence on Christ. The only way we can do something like this is if we're saying, not I, but Christ in me. It's not I, but it's Christ in me. Friend, if we're struggling to forgive, what we need is not to try harder to forgive. That's, that's not what you should do. If you're struggling to forgive, what you should do is ask the Holy Spirit, to give you fresh eyes of faith to see how you have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. If you're struggling to forgive what you need, you need another trip to Jerusalem. You need to go up that hill called Golgotha. You need to see the bloody, battered body of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. The pure, holy, innocent Son of God, having our sins of lying and lusting and venting of anger and self-righteousness and judgmentalism and deceit and greed and the way that we can hurt others and not even care about our callousness, you need to see the cross and see Jesus being treated as we deserve. That's what's happening at the cross of Jesus Christ. He's hanging there not because he's being held responsible for what he did. He's hanging there being held responsible for what we have done. And friends, as we see the cross of Jesus Christ, 
as we see the tremendous debt that we owe God. Friends, for our life of sin, we deserve eternal life in hell forever. That's the debt we owe God. As we see the tremendous debt that we owe God being held against the Son of God. As we see our tremendous debt being paid with an unfathomable price. Oh, what love. What forgiveness. It's knowing how we've been forgiven that empowers us to forgive. It's knowing how we've been forgiven that empowers us to forgive. Friends, forgiveness requires faith. Just a mustard seed of faith. Not a lot of faith. Forgiveness requires just a little bit of faith in the big God who's given his life for us. Close with this story. When King Louis XII came into power in France, he and his supporters made a list of all of his enemies who had opposed his rule. His supporters thought this was going to be the hit list. Now we're in power, and now we're going to use our power to get after these guys. But King Louis XII was a man who had been changed by Jesus Christ. And so what he did is next to the name of every single one of his enemies, he put a big red cross. There was the name, there was the offense they had done, and then there was the cross covering that offense. He used his position of power to be empowered to forgive others. Friends, that's how forgiveness happens. It doesn't come from forgetting what's been done. It comes from covering it with the blood of Jesus Christ. Relationships require faith. It takes faith to care. It takes faith to forgive. It's hard work, made even harder in the year 2020. But friends, it is vital work. This is how God moves in our life. Speaking from experience, sermons can inspire us Transformation happens as we apply God's word in the context of relationships. What we're experiencing right now will not have the effect God wants it to have if we're not applying God's word together in the context of relationships. This is why we have small groups, so we can have context to build deep relationships. Why we do men's and women's Bible studies. This is why we encourage you not just to run away right after the service, but to take time to build relationships with other people. That's why if you're online, we encourage you to engage with us and get to know us better. Transformation happens through relationships, but relationships require faith. And so as we consider all this, as we consider all this, may our prayer be the prayer of these disciples. Lord, increase our faith. Give us more of this faith so we can experience more of your power through the relationships you want us to have in our lives. Let's bow our heads.